Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to a very special Jazz Shapers Uncut. This is where today and in next Saturday's show as well, we get to have a more in-depth conversation with a brilliant and unique business shaper. My guest I'm thrilled to say is Sir Martin Sorrell, founder of WPP, the Advertising and Marketing Services Group, and S4 Capital, an advertising and marketing company for the digital age. Raised in northwest London, the grandson of Eastern European immigrants, Sir Martin attended Cambridge and Harvard, and after nine years of doing many things, as he said, including leading acquisitions for Saatchi and Saatchi, the London ad agency, he quit. He was 40. This, he thought, could be his last chance to build his own business. He and a partner bought a controlling stake in Wire and Plastic Products, a company that made wire shopping baskets, and under his leadership, he built the renamed WPP into the world's largest advertising group of companies, with a market capitalization of over £16 billion, 400 companies with over 200,000 people in 113 countries, stunning the market with acquisitions of ad agencies J. Walter Thompson, Ogilvy Amather and many others. Sir Martin, with a tenure of 33 years, became the longest-serving and highest-paid FTSE 100 CEO. When he left the company, aged 73, he said, I had nothing to do and I wasn't going to go and play golf. A few weeks later, he founded S4 Capital, building a purely digital advertising and marketing services business, aiming to offer a better, faster, cheaper service than established players. Clients already include Google, Nestle and Procter & Gamble. We'll be chatting to Sir Martin in a few minutes about all of this and much more. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Astra Gilberto, Hot 8 Brass Band and Esperanza Spalding. That, ladies and gentlemen, is today's Jazz Shapers Uncut. Here's Jimmy Ponder with Mean Streets, No Bridges. That was Jimmy Ponder with Mean Streets, No Bridges. He hardly needs an introduction, but I'm giving one anyway. Sir Martin Sorrell. You mean Jimmy Ponder or me? You. <laughs> Both. If you'd have been listening and, and Sir Martin wasn't on, um, you would have heard him say to me, no, no, that's not right. No, no, that's not We hadn't even started the programme. It's really great to have you here. Good. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of moments to explain what S4 Capital does, but then I'm right. much more interested in you, even though you've got so much to talk about from a business point of view. Tell me about S4 Capital. Well, S4 Capital is a purely, it has four basic principles. Purely digital, because that's where the growth is. You know, digital, as you will know, at uh, Mishcon and Jazz FM, you know, digital is growing faster than traditional. In fact, traditional is not growing faster. It's, it's declining faster and faster. And so digital growing about 20%. The addressable market is probably about 550 billion, 600 billion of advertising spend around digital. There's another 500 billion marketing services and the 700 billion in trade budgets and associates. So the whole thing's about 1.7, 1.8 trillion, but we're really focused on the first 550, 600 and the second 500, the advertising and marketing services sector. And it's growing at 20% as opposed to traditional being down. 
So overall markets, probably overall segment of advertising is growing at about 4 or 5%, maybe a little bit less. So that's one reason. The second reason is, or second principle, is that we're, we have three fundamental areas that we're interested in. We, we call it the Holy Trinity, which may not go down in certain circles, but the Holy Trinity, first-party data, that is owned client data, driving the creation of digital advertising content, fit for format, fit for purpose, which we think the, the classic holding companies, which I tried to run one for 33 years or so, uh, that their structures and their approaches and their routing in analog services is causing problems for them. Their silos are causing problems for them. So advertising digital content, driving programmatic and data and analytics. So it's a continuous loop. It's rather like an election cycle without an election date. You know, the if you look at Michael Bloomberg's campaign, you know, people would say he won the air war, that's the, the media war, but lost the ground war, the the you know, in the trenches, the fighting in the trenches. You can use that analogy, the day-to-day hand-to-hand combat around the new media, social media. So you have that loop mm-hmm. of data driving the creation of content pumping it out programmatically, watching what Elliot does online. You know, he's on wsj.com, in which case we'll serve him with content that compares whatever we're talking about to a business, if you're on a fitness site, to a fitness program. And the best model I've seen is the Netflix model. I mean, in the last couple of years, Netflix have have tuned it to an always-on, a 24-7, always-on model. And we're we're working closely with Netflix uh, on a global basis. And that, I think, is the best example that I can think of of that model working. So that's the second principle. The third one, you mentioned this, faster, better, cheaper. We call it more elegantly speed, quality, value. Faster is about agility because most CEOs, CMOs, I'm sure this is not the case at Michigan, but and they complain about their organizations being too silent and not agile enough. Better means understanding the digital ecosystem more effectively, probably 16 or so companies. So Google, Facebook, Amazon, Tencent, Alibaba, Apple, Microsoft, Adobe, Oracle, Salesforce, IBM, SAP, ByteDance, Baidu, Snap and Twitter. There are others you'd throw in, but those 16 companies, we see ourselves as partnering with them, hardware, software, platforms, partnering with them to make sure that our clients optimize their digital budget allocation so that's better. And cheaper means not ZBB anymore, not zero-based budgeting anymore Mm. because that's been discredited by some of the things that have happened recently there by putting too much pressure on costs and reducing innovation and indeed branding spending. But in a world which is growing slowly, where there's very little inflation, very little pricing power, focusing on cost is something that inevitably analog clients in particular, as opposed to the digital fast-growing tech companies, focus on. And then the last principle is a unitary structure, that not the silos of the holding company. We, we've refined our offer to content, digital advertising content, and data and analytics and programmatic. We have basically two brands, Media Monks and Mighty Hive, and now we're putting them together. For example, this morning we pitched a piece of business as S4. On Friday we're continuing of that. We're pitching another major piece of business now as S4, and increasingly we're bringing the content, the data analytics, and programmatic together as one. Now, the exposition you've just given me has already in two years, you've you market cap of around a billion point two dollars. Yeah. Were you as clear 
35 years ago when you uh, sat in this small office and said, I know what I'm going to do, I'm going to build a conglomerate. No, and and if ne- not, what were you thinking at that moment? No, you never... Just briefly. I, I don't think you... I don't do brief answers. The, I, the, um... I, I thought I'd have a go there. Well, <laughs> um, I'm an aspirational kind No, of listen, you don't... You don't I, I don't think you know the bounds of what you're doing. So if you said to me at Sarchi's, you know, I had three lives in advertising in one way or another. One is at Sarchi's, one was at WPP and now at S4. And it's very difficult. I mean, I think back to your your question and, you know, if you'd asked me at Sarchi's, you know, I was working for the brothers and it was a wonderful environment, probably still one of the best, if not the best environments, you know, the weekly £1 million account win in campaign, you know, with uh, Charlie Saatchi mimicking somebody, you know, with a, a reporter at campaign, mimicking Simon Mellor, who was his personal assistant at Saatchi's. And, no, great days, but you never knew, you know, how far, how fast, what you would do. And the same thing goes for WPP. Did we know when we started WPP that 18 months later we'd make a hostile bid for JWT, which was 13 times our size? No. So a lot of this is driven by, you know, my father used to say you make your own luck by trying as hard as you possibly can. But a lot of this is driven by circumstances. You know, did we have a clear vision for Sarches? Do we have a clear vision for WPP? Do we have a clear vision for S4? Yes. But, you know, you, you, you circumstances and the volatility at the moment, you know, one of the people inside uh, Mighty Hive said to me in New York last week, why do you think there's so much volatility with CEOs? You know, Bob Iger becomes chairman, AJ Banger becomes chairman of MasterCard, and Bob Iger at Disney. And there seems to be a lot of change going on. And I think the reason is the volatility is huge. So you never know what's around the corner. And it's both opportunity and threat. Stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Sir Martin Sorrell. We'll be back with him in a couple of minutes. But first, we're going to hear from one of our partners at Mishkondor. I hope they're as impressive as you with some advice for your business. Hello, I'm Kate Higgins from the corporate department at Mishkondorea. One of the key issues facing our business clients is how to achieve the long-term success and prosperity of their business whilst dealing with the day-to-day needs of running the business. One method of achieving this is to have in place a sound system of corporate governance. And this is an area where we work closely with our clients. It's a good idea to set it at an early stage and then reassess as the business grows. So what is sound corporate governance? Well, helpfully, there is new guidance in the form of the weights principles for corporate governance, and these apply to private companies. There are two main areas which the weights principles tackle. The first surrounds the board makeup, but the second area is where I want to focus today. It's about achieving success in business through identifying a strong corporate purpose and setting a values and culture that underpin that purpose. One area that's recognised as being key to this is having strong relations with stakeholders. Businesses these days, particularly large businesses, will need to report in their annual reporting accounts on what mechanisms they have in place to engage with their stakeholders. Stakeholders will include the company's employees, suppliers, customers and financiers. Having strong relationships with your stakeholders will help you attract and retain business, investment and talent. So ask yourself, how do I measure up against the new guidelines? Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former Jazz Shapes and indeed hear this programme again by popping Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, and there are many of them. Or you can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers, and there you'll find many of the recent programmes. But back to today, it's Sir Martin Soul, founder of WPP and founder of S4 Capital. Immediately, you explain the market. You feel like you're a macroeconomist. Were you always like this? I mean, did you, at the age of 15, just say... Let me explain a few things to you. I mean, at what point did did you... But at what point did you go, I just see the connections here and I can then articulate it? Very few people in advertising, Sir Martin, I worked in the industry, as you know. And um, survived to tell the story. And survived, and I've had a whole Even new second. Even a Burnett. I mean, was I it part of publicists? It be, no, it wasn't at the time. Okay, well, it was 1993, when it was, but then when it, it got, was a really good age. Then it was it. BCom 3, and then it was publicists. Yes. Um, but it feels like you, as you said, opportunity, threat, they're, this, they're kind of yeah. the two sides of the same thing. At what point did you realise you were pretty good at going, this is the lay of the land? Because many ne- people call have, on you. Never have. But no. people call on you all the time, yeah, you know, whether really. it's on telly or not whatever. Re- not really. I mean... No, listen, I think my mother said the worst thing ever happened to me was going to Harvard Business School. And I think when you sit there, I was 19. I was the second youngest out of 700 people in my class. Uh, Gary Jonas, who sadly died, was the youngest. Just died recently. He was a classmate of mine, and he was the youngest. So I was young, and it was the, we were described as being the most naive class at the Harvard Business School, the uh, dean of admissions. Uh, said we because it was at the time of the Vietnamese draft. So to avoid the draft, a lot of the Americans went straight to school. Yeah, sat there for two years doing three case studies a day, and the question was, what should the chairman do and why? Now, now that was a bad thing because you came out of there thinking you could run the world, and you couldn't run the world for at least twenty or thirty years because you didn't have any experience. Uh, life is a bit different now because people leave school. I spoke to one young Yale undergraduate just today who said to me, you know, he's going to start an internet-based startup immediately. So a lot of people just go to Stanford Business School for the connections around Silicon Valley and then go off and start their own firm. So a little bit different now. But I think what what I think the answer to your question is that you do you go through that hot house. Mm. I remember Bruce Wasserstein saying that HBS was a hot house and Saatchi's actually was a hot house as well, and it forces you or encourages you to think about, you know, HBS or Harvard Business School is about general management. You know, if you want to go for finance, you might go to Wharton. If you're more interested maybe in technology, you think about Stanford. But HBS is about general management. I think that, that there was one course in the second year run by, taught by a man called Wickham Skinner, uh, who was uh, not a Marine, but loved the Marines. In fact, our, our going away gift to him was a Marine helmet we wrote to the Lieutenant General, whoever it was, of the U.S. Marines, and made him an honorary member of the Marines. He was a wonderful, wonderful teacher. You didn't open your trap in that in that class unless you knew 150% what you were going to say. And, it, you know, fear of being called on, you know, cold call was, was heavy. But his class was called Manufacturing Policy, but it wasn't. It was about business policy. And we started uh, three industries. We started with furniture industry, electronics, and I think it was oil and gas. And the case studies were, were very general about strategy. So most of the stuff we did, whatever it was called, was about strategic uh, courses and strategic uh, direction. So I think that's what, what fashion means. I was always, I'm always interested in it. I mean, I think the confluence of politics, economics, and what we do in advertising, because advertising is really interesting because you get access to all these companies. They can be global companies, multinational companies, regional companies, local companies, 
big businesses, medium-sized businesses, small businesses, and you get to see. And what the clients want is for you to really understand their business. Mm. And that's that's the big opportunity. And I think in the older days, when people look back to the lions or fewer lionesses, but the lions and lionesses of the past, they look for a bit with rose-tinted spectacles. But I think it is true that some of the people historically in the industry understood the shifts that were taking place. And David Ogilvy was a classically good example of somebody who really... You know, he was really an account man. He, you know, people thought of him being a, a creative. I think, to my mind, he was a great account man because he understood clients well, worked hard at the client relationships, and then started thinking about strategically what should we mm. do. I remember picking up a film of him doing the pitch to the BT board members that they couldn't, they weren't in the room, and it was absolutely it was about strategy and it was about business. It wasn't really about the creative mind. Yeah. Well, stay with me for much more from my business shaper. It's Sir Martin Sorrel. We'll be back with him in a couple of minutes. But first, time for some more music right now. Here's Esperanza Sporting with I Know You Know. That was Esperanza Sporting with I Know You Know. Here on Jazz Shapers, alongside our brilliant business shapers, we also celebrate the greatest musicians shaping the world of jazz, soul and blues. And we want to encourage support for those musicians and the music industry at a time when coronavirus is clearly having a huge impact on people, industries and economies around the world. We've written a piece, you can find it on jazzfm.com, on how you can support the musicians or the venues or the music charities you love, whether that's financially or by communicating and engaging through their media channels and letting them know that you're with them. Thank you so much. We'll return to my brilliant jazz shaper on cut guest Sir Martin Sorrell in a few minutes. Plus, we'll be playing a track from the Hot 8 Brass Band. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mish Condorea. It's business, but it's personal. That was the Hot 8 Brass Band with Give Me the Night. And this is a very special Jazz Shapers Uncut edition with Sir Martin Sorrell. You've mentioned your father a couple of times. you mentioned your mother. Um, often anyone in the industry and people in, who are titans of the world of industry in general will say Sir Martin Sorrell, he's tough. He looks at the big picture. He's driven by the numbers. The numbers are big, 16 billion over here, 1.2 in three seconds over there. And yet I detect quite quickly a more emotional side because we're all emotional. Yeah. But tell me a little bit more about um, the relationship with your mum and dad. Uh, well, it was it was probably more with my father and my, my mother. My mother was an impossible Jewish mother, you know. Used to wrap everything in plastic for good reason, because, you know, wrapped everything in plastic because you were... They well, it lasts a they, long time. They, yeah. Well, they didn't have much, and therefore yeah. they wanted to make what they have last longer. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing she didn't wrap me in plastic and stick me in the fridge. Actually, people, I was coming on to a that. Lot of people, a lot story. of people would have liked that, that to be the case. <laughs> so my, my relationship, my mother was an incredibly boastful, or the usual, you know, Jewish... And you were a single, and you were the only kid. I was the only kid. Yeah, well, I did have a brother who died a That's year fine. before I was born, a uh, dry birth uh, death in those days. Childbirth was a little bit more hazardous than mm. it is today. So I was the last chance saloon, and it was the last chance my mother had to have a baby, I think. And so she, you know, she overdid it. And uh, she, you know, I was spoilt, rigid. But, you know, coming from what I, it's often described in the press to be middle class, and it wasn't middle class. I was born in Queensborough Court, 
And actually, the most amazing thing, I went to a dinner at Lord's with Ian Morgan, you know, Ian Morgan, the, the English test captain, and or cricket captain. And he, amazingly, he has a flat in Queensborough Court. And we spent about half the conversation talking about Queensborough Court just by Annalise Corner. So I was born up in the, born in the ghetto in northwest London, uh, midway between, I guess, Golders Green and Mill Hill. But then we graduated to Mill Hill. But my dad was really formative. I mean, he was the big influence. He was seven-day-a-week retailer. I watched him work very hard, so I probably learned. You know, on a Sunday, I would visit stores with him. Uh, you know, he, he had to leave school when he was 13 because he had to be an income-producing unit for the family. I don't think my Zayda, my grandfather, worked very hard. He, he lived, according to him, to over 100 years. He cut off a Cossack's hand, uh, you know, over the barrier of a, of, a, of a ghetto at the age of 10, he claimed. We didn't believe that to be the case. <laughs> my grandmother was a lioness, and um, I think my father inherited a lot of her characteristics. But my dad had, despite the fact he worked seven days a week, and we lived in Mill Hill, and he had to travel to Putney every morning, right across London, and then would do that on a Saturday. And on Sundays, he would get his regional sales figures, and I would go and visit stores with him. Uh, you know, despite that, he always had time for everything. It was amazing in terms of how he could allocate time to anything and everything. That's a skill that I don't have. And um, it's a great gift. And, you know, when I was traveling a lot, when I was um, married for the first time, I was traveling a lot with my young kids were, you know, doing 13 plus or whatever it happened to be. And my dad would fill in for my absences. And I would always be home on weekends, but he would fill in for my absences during the week, help my kids with their homework. And so therefore was a pivotal. And then I used to talk to him, and this is the days before iPhones and mobile phones, I used to talk to him, and this is not an exaggeration, I would say I spoke to him at least four or five times, six times a, a day. We had an incredible relationship, and he knew nothing about the advertising business. Uh, knew about it in the relationship, to the, in the context of run, running 750 electrical stores, radio electrical TV stores in the UK. So he thought about branding, and he thought about... Actually, he created... He was the first person to create these glass-fronted stores. So instead of walking down a channel with two windows on either side of you, you, you had a flush front. And uh, he designed himself, although he wasn't an architect, he wasn't a designer. So he had incredible talent. You know, he was um, a violinist. He, he won a violin scholarship to the Royal School of Music when he was 13 but couldn't take it up. Could speak Shakespeare and Talmud, I've said this many times, yeah. to, to an extent, I mean, not... Friends, Romans, country, <laughs> let me your ears. I mean, he could do the whole kitten caboodle. Mm. And he used to school me on, you know, used to, with Simon Sharma, he used to do these English-speaking union uh, competitions uh, every year. And you had a piece of prose you had to read, and then you, you had to recite a piece. And, you know, Henry V at Agincourt, you know, Richard III, As You Like It, Midsummer Night's Dream. He could recite 60, 70 lines from memory. Uh, and the same for the Talmud. Absolutely ask, extraordinary. The, obviously, you talk about him as if, I mean, it's you know a super close relationship. He was obviously a role model beyond. He was your yeah. closest friend, mm -hmm. I, I sense. Yeah. Was he, a, I mean, if he was a hero to you as well, that's like yeah. too schmaltzy. Has there ever been anyone that's touched that relationship? No, I had a, re I a relationship with a, um, a lawyer in New York, Phil Reese, who was the senior partner of Davis and Gilbert, who were our law firm. But, I mean, it transcended it. Like all good 
um, relationship. I mean, it's a lesson for the advertising business. You know, it transcends the business and becomes the personal. So, yeah, I would say Phil was close. He died about 2002, 2003. Um, but, you know, it's very rare that you find... What you have to do is, in my view, you know, people talk about mentors and the relationship. I think you have to find somebody who has uh, no agenda, as, as they say, and can give you... Disp- and may not know the ins and outs of what you're talking about or the business, like my dad didn't, really. Mm. But knew... I mean, his gift was quite extraordinary in terms of his understanding of people. I mean, he could say to me, you know, I'd be talking about, I won't go into the specifics, but, you know, I might be talking about a situation where I was having difficulty or challenges or uh, opportunities. And he would say to me, most extraordinary thing, he would say, here is a word that you should inject into the conversation. As finite as that, I would inject it in the conversation and I would get the the desired emotional response or response, verbal response, from injecting that word. His understanding of people uh, was quite extraordinary. It was almost uh, magical. And the, the tragedy about my dad is he always worked for other people until the day he died at 74 and died, in my view, too early. I mean, he used to say, Bible says three score and 10, 70 years. So he thought... He had his whack. I disagree with him. You know, my mother died when she was 90. And I reckon I was um, robbed um, mm-hmm. of a, a few years. So, And I just think the tragedy of that was, you know, his parents came, as you said, uh, from with, as best as we can determine from Ukraine in 1899, uh, not speaking any language on their wedding certificate. You know, all the witnesses, the four witnesses signed with crosses. They signed with crosses too. No disputed word of English. You had to go to school at 13 in Mile End Central in East London. And he, he was immensely talented intellectually, music, Shakespeare, Talmud, whatever, and never got the opportunity that he gave me to capitalize on that. That is the uh, sad bit of the story. That was Miles Davis with On Green Dolphin Street. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a good week. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoyed that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.